Matthew 5, 4 is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, back in there doing part two of this series we began last week called So You Want to Be Happy. And we talked about how everyone wants happiness. We're all looking for happiness, but many of us are going after a form of happiness that's being sold to us that when we get it, it doesn't deliver what we long for. And God tells us that he wants us to be happy, but many of us are on the wrong path to pursue happiness. And we're going to continue where Jesus is preaching a sermon in Matthew chapter 5, where he's talking about this very topic of happiness. And we're going to look specifically today at verse 4. Uh, we'll read the first three verses again to get the context, just to give you an idea of the context. Um, Jesus is preaching this message. He's incredibly popular at this point. He's been healing and teaching, and crowds are gathering around. And he's began this message in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. And it was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, depending on your translation. Repentance means you're, you're headed down one path. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. You stop and you turn, and you go on another path. And repentance is the theme here. It's the idea that sets up what's taking place. That's the message he's continually preaching about the kingdom. And these crowds gather around. They want to hear Jesus speak, and he speaks about something that all of us want to know about, about happiness. But what he talks about is far different than what most of us think of. He says that in uh, verse 1, Matthew tells us there were crowds that saw Jesus, and they began to gather around. And he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And so we've got two members in the audience here. You've got people that are in the crowd. Some of them just want to be fed. Some of them want to hear this teaching they've never heard before. And they're gathering around, and Jesus knows they can't live out what he's preaching here, but he still lets them listen. It's like me speaking today. I know some of you do not have the Spirit of God living in you. You have not turned your life over to Jesus Christ. We still want to hear this. And there's others. You have committed your life to Christ. This can be a reality in your lives. He says his disciples came to him, the other part of the audience, and he began to teach them. And what he begins to teach them about is happiness. And we saw in the NIV it's translated blessed, but it's this Greek word, makarios, which means a deep inner satisfaction and security that transcends circumstances can also be translated happy, blessed, happy, fortunate. And then he describes who the people are, which are oftentimes a description we wouldn't think of. And then there's a for or because... And then a statement of what it is that brings the happiness. And so, statement of blessing, who they are, then where the happiness comes from. The last week we saw this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the poverty of spirit. They've got nothing to offer. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And remember we saw that last week, verse 3 and verse 10 have the exact same reason. And so the, with the eight blessing statements, we oftentimes call beatitudes, happy are the... We've got this inclusio, Bible scholars call it, these bookends. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, in verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, in verse 10. And so everything in between there is about the theme of living as a kingdom person. For theirs, what does it look like to live out the kingdom? Well, he tells us the second one. Each one of these beatitudes build on the other. In verse 4, the one we'll look at today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this one, if it doesn't make sense to you when you first read it, that makes sense. He may as well have said, happy are the sad. Blessed are those who are weeping. That doesn't make sense in our world because remember what he's talking about here is a different world. The kingdom of heaven. This is not our place. We are not citizens of this place. We are citizens of heaven. We live in this place. The problem is we get bought into the idea, the concepts of this place, the concepts of happiness, that happiness would be just if everything were smooth and all of our circumstances were tranquil, then we'd be happy. Problem is that never actually happens. And the moments where we do get it, it doesn't seem to quite meet the desire that we have within us. A God-given desire for true happiness, the kind that he's defining here, the kind he's talking about when he says, makarios, a deep inner satisfaction that transcends circumstances, not happenstances that take place in our lives. 
but a security and a satisfaction in the Lord. So then circumstances can't touch that. And then how does it look to live it out? Well, the truly happy people are the ones that are mourning. That's otherworldly kind of talking. That's kingdom of heaven type talking. That's hard for us to imagine. In fact, this past week, you may have noticed that we celebrated Back to the Future Day. I don't know if you saw that. October 21st, uh, 2015 was Back to the Future. We have a holiday for everything, don't we? That was what hit me when I saw this. I was, I was working out in the morning, saw on the TV screen. Fox News was putting up there. It's Back to the Future. I was like, what is that madness? So, we, you know, I don't know. Who knows what movies are being made now that we'll celebrate <laughs> in 30 years. But they were doing this. And if you saw on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, people were putting all this Back to the Future Day stuff. One guy actually went through and showed all the stuff that actually happened. They predicted from this movie that was made in 1989 but took place in 1985. And then they traveled to the future of October 21st, 2015, and they predicted what technology would be like, and they had hoverboards. And so we have a picture of a hoverboard up there. We don't see anybody using those today. Um, they had cameras that you can pull right out of your pocket. Which Think about how foreign that was in 1985. Like it's normal for us to pull a camera out of our pocket and take pictures. Remember those, those huge cameras that we would use back in 1985? And then the digital camera came out, but it wasn't even on our phone. How archaic is that? And then flying cars, which hasn't become a reality yet. But I saw these different things on, on the internet. I was looking at this on that day. And I thought to myself, how hard must it have been to imagine what it would be like in 2015 back in 1985? This week, Microsoft came out and told us things that will be true in 2045 and 30 years from now. They said that we will not just have smartphones, we'll have smart cities that we can interact with. Artificial intelligence will be normal, so we'll talk to our appliances, which I thought this morning... I have a broken microwave that I can't figure out in my house. It'd be awesome to be like, fix yourself. <laughs> It'd be cool. Uh, you've got different things. that They said that cars, they're not going to be flying cars, but they're going to be able to drive themselves. That's kind of neat. Like you could do stuff while you're driving. Oh, wait, we do that now. Um, how will it be? Di- it's hard to imagine another world. And that's one of the reasons why it's difficult to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Because it's so contrary to our world. Even the happiness that he promises. We don't have a category for this kind of happiness because most people never experience it or have seen other people experiencing it. But if we would experience it, remember what he says at the end of this introduction to this message, that we'd be the salt of the world, that we'd be sitting on a hill, that we'd let our light shine. But the problem is we're looking for this stuff in all these places, the venues we're going to, they're not putting this on display. And the stores we're shopping in, they're not selling this happiness that we're going for. And Jesus is telling us how to have it here. And he tells us how to have it. It's not by crying. It's not by weeping. It's not by mourning. But you have to go through that process in order to experience where it comes from, the comfort. The truly happy are the ones that mourn. The mourners are the truly happy. That's otherworldly. But that's what Jesus is telling us here. It's the mourners, those who are weeping, those who are broken, you could use the term, are the ones that are truly happy. And remember, this isn't a command in this passage. So this isn't to tell you to go out and mourn, but it's really a describer. It's a description. It's a statement. And so the question for us is, does this describe us? And so what kind of mourning is he talking about? What is he talking about mourning over? And he's not talking about general mourning here. Now, before I get too much into that, let me say this. Some of you may have had, you know, gone to the hospital yesterday, or you've gotten in a car accident, and that makes you sad, or stock market crash, you lost your job, and they can be more, smaller mourning type things. Um, some of you have lost children or loved ones. And God will comfort all of those things if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. For believers, you will experience the comfort of God. But that's not what I think this passage is talking about. Some people, you may disagree. But I think when you look at the context of this passage, it's talking about a specific kind of mourning. It's a mourning over sin. 
Just think about what our context is. Jesus began preaching back in Matthew chapter 4, one chapter earlier. And what was his message? The very first words out of his mouth in his public ministry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It describes what's taking place there. Put the verse up on the screen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time on, so he began preaching it then, and he kept preaching this message. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent. Stop and turn. Deal radically with your sin. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near or is at hand. And what are we talking about in this message? Remember our inclusio, verse 3, verse 10? It's the kingdom of heaven that we're talking about. There's our context. And what did we just talk about last week? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not just the poor, not just the materially poor. It's not just, hey, if you want to be happy, give away all your stuff and be poor. It's talking about a spiritual poverty. That comes from our recognition of our sinfulness and our inability to bring anything to the table before God. So our immediate context, the more distant context, all of it's talking about sin. So the mourning he's talking about here is a mourning over our sin. And it's interesting what word Jesus uses for mourning here. In the New Testament, there are nine different words to describe mourning, which that alone should be an observation for us. Nine words to describe mourning that shows how regular it is in our lives. Different types of mourning that we do. But the word that he uses here is the strongest of all nine of those words. It's a deep grief. It's the deepest kind of grief that you can possibly experience in this life. And so I ask you, think about what's the, what's the greatest grief that you've ever experienced? What's even the saddest? Experience the greatest mourning. I think about it in my own life. I remember when my dad died. I remember I was out hunting with Shanna's dad at the time. I don't even like hunting. We were just hanging out. I'm trying to score points with father-in-law and we're out there and I didn't even have a cell phone. Shows you how, how different the world was. It wasn't in 1985, but it was a while ago. And uh, we were out in the hunting blind, and my father-in-law got a call from our church. I was the youth pastor. He was a deacon at the church. And they told him that my dad had passed away. When we were done hunting, I remember he looked at me and said, Hey, your, your dad died today. So we need to head back. We got in the car. We drove. I can't remember if it was 30 minutes, an hour. It seemed like a really long time. We didn't say one word the whole time. And I can still picture like the farms that we drove by as we were leaving where we were hunting at. And we got back, and I remember we got to Shannon and I's first apartment. It was a basement apartment. She opens the door, and I hadn't said a word. It was like I had no emotions because I was in shock. It just didn't seem real. And my, my words, I didn't know what I was going to say, but when I saw her, I said, is it true? And then I just began to lose it. I just began to weep because it didn't even seem real. The word that's being used for mourn here is to mourn over the loss of a loved one is the way that it's used. It's a very interesting word that he would choose when he's talking about mourning over our sin. That we'd have the greatest grief that we can possibly have because of our sinfulness. And so you think about the greatest grief you've ever had in your life. Do you mourn like that over your sin? It's not a command to go do this. It's saying that those who are truly happy are the ones who, you would describe them this way. They mourn over their sin. Like they would mourn over the loss of a loved one. And the reality is, at least when you think about the church in general, and I don't know about you individually, each person and how you deal with your sin, but most of us, we wouldn't. Most of us, we don't think sin's that big of a deal. And we almost act like if we do think sin's a big deal, that we're somehow taking away what Jesus did on the cross. Like somehow it's bad. Like we don't have a good view of grace. Or we don't understand the freedoms that we have. We don't understand our position in Jesus. We, don't we say all these statements that we're Christianized and layered over top of misunderstandings of other doctrines. And so we treat our sin, we treat it like it was a mistake. You hear the way we talk about it. I made a mistake. I messed up. It was an accident. Let me tell you something. Sin is not a mistake. 
We make mistakes when we do paperwork. We make mistakes filing stuff. We make mistakes doing our taxes. If you have an accident, is when your neighbor parks behind you and you back into him. That's an accident. Sin is rebellion against God. Holiness is rebellion against this world, but sin is rebellion against God. We decide we're going to go our own way. That's why he calls repentance. It's turning. It's you, you're going, you're, you decided that you know better than me. You decided that you're going to do your own thing. You don't think that I actually deliver satisfaction. You're going to pursue it in another path. That's sin. And that is rebellion against God. And it's ugly and it's dirty and we make it light and we make it superficial. And we joke about it and we rationalize it. We do all kinds of stuff with it. But do we mourn over it is really the question when we look at this passage. And the reality is that many of us treat it very superficially. I was reading one Bible commentator. If you want to, under, you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount better, I'm going to give you one book to read. It's a Martin Lloyd-Jones, his studies on the Sermon on the Mount. He says that we have a superficial view of happiness and a superficial view of sin. And when you put those two things together, it makes us superficial Christians. And you think about our view of happiness. We just think about it like it's circumstantial. Like if I just get all my, I just have a joyous moment. If I could just have these times when I laugh. And we think of that as happiness. And then we think of sin as a mistake or an accident. Let me tell you something about our sin. It's not a mistake or an accident. When you make a mistake, the IRS might fine you some money. That's not what God does with our sin. If you have an accident, your insurance rates go up. The wages of sin is not increased insurance rates. The wages of sin is not that you have some financial penalty in your life. The wages of sin is death and separation from God. It's why Christ had to go to the cross for us. You think about what sin is and how ugly it is and how heinous it is. And it's killing us. Every once in a while, Hollywood will come out with a movie and they will uh, have some, it doesn't matter what the title is, but there'll be some disease that comes, whether it's from some third world country and somebody ate something they shouldn't have eaten, didn't wash their hands or whatever, and then all of a sudden the country's been wiped out, some terrorist attack where they infiltrate us and speed up the process, and you see these people dying. I watch these movies, they're pretty intense. And all these people will be dying, they die in horrible ways. They get boils on their face, people will be convulsing, it's just terrible. Whatever the situation is, it's awful. It starts to wipe out the population. It starts to make you question, what would we do if something like this happened and you're watching it? But inevitably, in every one of these movies, I don't know why it is, it's like there's a formula they're given for the script. In every one of these movies, they'll show some dumb teenagers that while this is all happening, they just want to party. Like they want to get drunk or they want to make out and they're at you know, the drive-in or the dad's basement or something like that. And then that's all they're thinking about. And no matter what, when you're watching the movie, you're thinking to yourself, you idiots! You're about to get slaughtered and you want to get drunk. And I wonder if someone were to just watch what's happening in our world, if we as the church wouldn't be the dumb teenagers in the movie that minimize what's taking place around us. And what's even more ironic is not only are we being wiped out by this disease of sin, not only is it destroying our world, but we have the cure. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Think about what we do. We rationalize our sin. Oh, everyone does it. God understands. I mean, I do all this other good stuff for him, so certainly I can have this. We minimize it. It's not as bad as what someone else does. At least I don't fill in the blank. We desensitize ourselves to it. We joke about it. We sing about it. We laugh about it. But do we mourn over it? Do we mourn over our sin? Does it break your heart? And some people will say, well, well not now that I'm a Christian. I don't have to do it. You don't understand grace, Scott. If you're telling me I have to mourn over my sin as a Christian. And I say, if you say that, you don't understand grace. Because you can't understand grace unless you understand sin. You can't understand the magnitude of grace until you understand the weight and the heaviness and the darkness of your sin, even as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not just something that took place at the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. 
Repentance is something that continually takes place throughout our lives. Here's why. Positionally, before God, you are right with God. You are seen as holy. Guess what? You're not holy. You practically continue to sin. Why does Paul say, the guy who writes about our identity in Christ, the guy who writes about justification by faith alone, the guy who writes about all the things that we should believe about grace, he writes about them, but he says, I am, not I was, I am a wretched man, Romans chapter 7, verse 24. And 1 Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, why does he say, I am, not I was, I am the chief of sinners. And guess what? A bunch of us are going for second. But we treat it like it's light. John says that if we claim that we have no sin, we lie, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, acknowledge them, see them the way that God sees them. That's confession. If we confess our sins, that God's faithful. He's just. He will forgive us our sins. It had to happen through, guess which way? The death of his son, Jesus Christ, because the wages of sin is death. It's either our death, separation from him, or his death that we trust in. Once we've trusted in that death, we still have to continue to repent. It's like Martin Luther said, the first of the 95 theses when he was rebelling against the Catholic Church. He's telling them they're not teaching the scriptures, they're teaching up their own man-made stuff. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's one where we recognize and we realize that when we are doing the things that we minimize, things that we rationalize, the things that we try to be desensitized to, those are the very things that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was our lying that put a thorn crown on his head. It was our lust that ripped out his beard. It was our minimizing the things that killed him, that mocked him and spit on him. And why? So that he could take on the wrath of God for us. That's the wages of sin. And we take it light. And we rationalize it, and we minimize it, we desensitize ourselves to it, and then we try to hide it. And we try to pretend like it's not reality in our lives. It's not happening with us. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they run in the, how, how stupid is it to run and hide from God? He created this. Like if he wants to pick the tree up that you're hiding behind, he can't. It's like one of my kids hiding underneath the bed and their legs are hanging out. They're hiding. <laughs> you're hiding on God. You covered yourselves with fig leaves. Seriously, you couldn't come up with something better. Like you just, at least be better at hiding it. And that's what we do. We suppress it, we hide it, we pretend like it's not reality until we realize the weight of our sin and it becomes so heavy that we no longer want to hide it. Until we get tired. Until we, the shame becomes too much. Until we can't even live with ourselves, becomes so fake and trying to make everyone else think that everything's okay when inside we know that it's not. I had a gentleman share with me this week via email. He told me I could share it with you, his story. He's a member of our Celebrate Recovery Ministry and a guy who, if you asked him to share a story, he'd tell you, uh, grew up in the church and really tried to convince everybody they had everything together and even convinced himself, but he shared what was going on in his heart, and I'm just going to read to you what he wrote me, because I like his words. He said, I attempted to draw out the gnawing in my soul through, and then he lists all these things, religion and music and food and fitness and codependency, and he put love in parentheses, like love, like not real love, pornography, masturbation, prostitution, and adultery. So God began drawing me home to him through the aching pain in my heart that grew exponentially as I sought to fill it. The mask, like Jim mentioned, began to fall apart. The true depravity and darkness of my nature showed through. I dove headfirst into online sex chatting, masturbation, gluttony, prostitution, adultery against my bride. And by the grace of God, I reached a point where I was tired of the shame, tired of hiding, of being a coward. I wrote in desperation, so he shares some words that he wrote in his own journal. I need someone to rescue me, someone to come after me. 
He says, oh, how beautiful the heart of God that he inspired me to pen those words. I read in 1 John that God is light and him there's no darkness at all. The idea of coming to the light out of darkness drove me to confess the adulteries, hiding and lying to my counselor, my community group, and the precious wife that God gave me, who he's now separated from. Separation shattered the walls of my heart. I wept for many, many hours. He said, this began remorse for the wrongs I had done against her. For the first time, I could see how wrongly I had treated her even far before we were married. Panic attacks, fear, anxiety, and heavy insecurity ensued. All the pain I had run from came to the forefront. I had to deal with it. I read Second Timothy and Second Peter, which cut straight to the heart. My eyes were opened by the Spirit of God to see the darkness that was me, the enemy of God. So I fell to my knees, begging God for true repentance, for godly sorrow. I remember feeling crushed under the weight of my sin, driven to my knees with my face in the carpet, the reality that I had betrayed not just his wife, the God of the universe, who has the power to destroy souls. It drove me to plead for his forgiveness. I surrendered everything, my dreams, my desires, my goals, my hopes, all to Jesus acknowledging his death on the cross and his resurrection, his coming to life, to give it to me and to give it to me abundantly. That he paid the price I could never pay. And I begged him to break every hard area in my life, to raise me to a new life. I walked through steps of confessing and repenting, fleshly patterns of sin and lies that I believed. He mourned over sin. Do you think he understands grace? But it's not until you understand the weight of your sin. He talked about there a godly sorrow. We try to run from sorrow. We try to not have any sadness. We try to dodge all those types of things. But the Bible talks about it as a healthy thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. Gets to the point of dealing with our sin. That leads to salvation. It leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, which is the thing that we think we actually want to avoid, brings death. We just feel bad about it and there's consequences and we don't want to deal with the consequences. We're not even talking about the consequences. There are consequences for sin. What we're talking about here is the relationship we have with God. The reason why the word for mourning is so strong is because what's being lost is the very thing that we, the, the deep desire we have for happiness, the thing that stops it is sin. Because it cuts us off from the source of happiness, which is God. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with God. But when you sin, it breaks fellowship in that relationship. So even as a believer, you have to take sin seriously. And it's not just, oh, that was taken care of at the cross. Yeah, it was taken care of at the cross. You know where You need to go back there every time you sin. Back to the cross. Back to restore that fellowship. It's like if uh, in my marriage, I, pr- I pledged to my wife. I got married. We said some big words. Talked about how I was going to never be selfish and how I was going to love her all the time. And we've been married for 15 years. I think once or twice I've done some unloving things. Two, maybe three, something like that. I don't know. I'm being very transparent here. Um, if I didn't deal with the stuff that I did wrong, we'd still be married. But what's it going to do to our intimacy? We're still Christians after we sin. But how is our intimacy with God? And if he is the source of true happiness, the kind that we're talking about here, not just pleasant circumstances, and we get cut off from that, why wouldn't it make sense to, do, to be grieved in our heart to the deepest possible grief we can have, godly sorrow, to deal radically then with our sin that leads to repentance? And there's no regret because it points us to the cross of Christ. Do you mourn over your sin, over your personal sin? 
Well, not just over your sin. We must mourn over our personal sin. But you know what happens when we mourn over our personal sin is we start to become sensitive to the sin in the lives of others. And I don't mean in a judgmental way. I mean in a way like you had a disease that was killing you and you have the cure and then you start seeing other people dying of that disease. And you want to share the cure. And when they don't take it, it breaks your heart. You mourn over their sin. Now you judge their sin. Now you tell them how sinful they are. Your heart's actually broken because you know that what's happening in their lives is killing them. That's what we see with Jesus and his life. Matthew chapter 23, he preaches all these woes and how the end of the world's going to come, what's going to be like in the last days. And at the very end, he looks at the city of Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you together. Like a hen gathers her chicks. And Jesus isn't feeling bad because he's been rejected. It's because they're choosing sin. They're choosing to go, they think they know better than him. And it breaks his heart that they're killing themselves. To the most profound words in the New Testament, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. Why did Jesus weep? It's the story is happening is that Mary and Martha's house, their brother Lazarus, who's also Jesus' friend, has just died. He's been in the tomb for four days. And it says, Jesus wept. You read Bible commentators, some of them will say that he's weeping because Lazarus was his friend and he loved him so much. I don't think that's even possible because he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is going to come walking out of there. I think the reason why Jesus is weeping is because he's going to bring him back to this place. He was in a place with no crying and no pain and no sin, and he's going to bring him back here. It's weeping over sin. And you think about our, our city. Did you weep over our city? We talk about reaching our city for Christ. Do you even care about things that are happening outside of your house? Over 200 chronically homeless people in our city. If you ever lay in bed and think to yourself, not just, is it going to rain tonight and are, are they going to be okay, but how did they get there? It's all of our problems, the root of our problems is sin. How did that happen? Was it something that happened to them? Was it something they did? Like, how did they get to this spot? Over 2,000 orphans in our city, or in our uh, state. And there's 17,000 churches, by the way, 2,000 orphans. That's a problem that can be solved but some kids that want parents. Does it break your heart? Just in Wake County, on an annual basis, we have over 6,000 abortions. Terrible. We want to Planned Parenthood videos and be disgusting and all that, but do you ever think to yourself, I don't know how many women had those abortions. Maybe there's 4,000 of them. Some of them had more than one. Maybe it's 6,000 women. Where are they now? Because even if murder is legal, it doesn't mean that it makes it okay in your conscience. So what are they doing? How do they feel? How do they deal with that pain? How do they stop that recording from playing in their head? Not to mention the lives that were lost, the, the babies that were killed. Does that break your heart? Here's the worst one. There's over a million lost people in our city. More than any social problem, if they die, they're going to spend eternity being tormented. They're separated from God because the wages of sin is death. And we have the gift of God, which is eternal life. And so do you weep over that? Do you care? The truly happy are those who mourn over sin. But that's not why they're happy. The reason why they're happy, but the mourning has to happen first. The reason why they're happy is because of the comfort that comes. Second part of the verse. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 again. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. Why? Why are they happy? Why would a crying person be happy? For they will be comforted. You're going to experience the comfort of Christ. The truly happy are those who know the comfort of Christ. That's our second point. The truly happy are those who know, experientially know, the comfort of Jesus Christ. And you can only have that after you've mourned. 
I think about one of my favorite passages, and some of you are teaching it in Bridge Kids today to the little kids. Difficult passage to teach the little kids. What happens in Luke chapter 7 is that this woman comes in. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. Why is she weeping? Because she's a woman with a reputation. She's weeping over her sins. She washes Jesus' feet, and Jesus has this conversation with this religious guy about how he doesn't acknowledge and doesn't recognize his sin. And then he says this statement, this amazing statement, Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. Why? Because they, rec- they know forgiveness. How do you know forgiveness? Not until you know the weight of your sin. Let me tell you something. Some of you came to Christ when you were like five, came to Christ when you were like six. You've sinned much. All of us have sinned enough to put Jesus on the cross. That's a lot of sin. We've all sinned much. So we all have been forgiven much. So we all should then love much. Because we've experienced greatly the comfort of Jesus Christ. Because his comfort comes from his forgiveness and from his presence. It's like uh, last uh, two or three weeks ago, I think it was, we did the fall festival. I can't remember the exact date. Uh, but I remember I was standing there, I was talking to a member of our church, uh, Kim Moore. We used to be in a small group together. We were catching up a little bit, talking about life and I was chatting through some things. We're birthday buddies. We'll have birthday on the same day, talking through some of that stuff. And then I, as I'm standing there chatting with her, I look over and one of my kids comes by in somebody's arms and she's got blood all over her face. And I thought, well, maybe she cut her lip or something. It's no big deal. I actually jokingly said to her, tell John Cullen I'm going to sue the church. So I'm not suing the church, by the way. It was a joke. And uh, I walked over and thought, these kids get hurt, whatever it is. And what ended up happening was uh, my daughter banged heads with one of her friends in one of the bounce housey things that we had out there. And uh, she was bleeding through her nose, which I thought, oh, the nose bleed will still be fine. But then when I started to talk to her, I thought something might be seriously wrong. I don't know anything about medical stuff, but she wasn't responding right. Like you'd say something and she'd kind of glaze a look would come by. And then people started to gather around. We got a bunch of medical folks in our church. And they took her in the bathroom. My wife uh, is a nurse, and they were rinsing her nose off and put ice on it, did all these things, and they're comforting her. Later in the day, she's bouncing around on the trampoline at our house. She's totally fine. And one of you cared so much, you actually called. called the, One of the nurses at our church called and said, hey, how's she doing? So she couldn't experience the comfort until she experienced the pain. We want to avoid all the pain. No one likes pain, but pain's actually a good thing. Pain tells us something's wrong. What happened a couple days later was what was really interesting to me is that a couple days later, I was downstairs. My daughter was upstairs at our house, and I heard her yelling, I want dad. And what happened is she got a bloody nose again. Now, I couldn't help her. Like, I don't know what to do when that happened. It was all the medical, my wife and the other medical people that helped her out. But she just wanted me there. She just wanted me present. We wiped her nose off, the bloody nose that she had again. She said, I just want dad. You know, the word for mourn is really strong here. In this passage, the word for comfort's a really strong word too. Uh, it can be translated to come alongside, to be with someone in their pain. And remember, there's another inclusio in Matthew. Matthew, we talked about it uh, two, three weeks ago. We talked about it last week. It's in Matthew one twenty-three. He's Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew twenty-eight and verse twenty, and lo, I am with you always. There's a way that we experience the presence of God in our lives when we realize his forgiveness and that he wants to be a part of our lives in spite of our depth of our sin, in spite of the fact that we nailed him to the cross, that he wants to be in our lives that brings a comfort that surpasses understanding. But you can't experience it until you experience the mourning, until you experience the weight of your sin. And when you do, and then you repent and you turn to him, you experience his presence. And he comforts us in our pain because he's the God of comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. 
He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the suffering of Christ overflow into our lives, just as the pain of sin and the consequences of other people's sins come into our lives, just as the consequence of our own sin comes into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So just as we share in the pain of sin, we also share in the comfort that comes only from Christ. Have you experienced that comfort? It only happens when we mourn. Do we mourn over our sin? Do we care about our sin that much? And it says in the passage, you will be comforted. You experience that comfort now. It's after the morning. It's sequential. But then also in the future, there's a comfort from knowing that eventually the comfort's going to be incredible in eternity when we get to that place where there's no crying and there's no pain. And Revelation 21 verse 4 says it like this, that he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. The world that we're familiar with, the one that's hard to imagine being in another one, that will have passed away. There's going to be a new world. A totally, it's going to be the reign and the rule of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice something about this verse that we oftentimes read over. It doesn't just say there won't be any crying. There won't be any tears. He personally will wipe away your tears. He, the God of the universe will attend to you and be your comfort. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. He'll be present. And you'll be there experiencing the joy of your own forgiveness. Do you experience that? Do you understand that? Maybe let's go preach on this this week, but I was struggling with that this week. I remember one morning uh, this week, Thursday, is when I write the sermon. I oftentimes write sermons on Thursdays. I woke up just struggling with sin, thinking about my sin, thinking about my sinfulness, struggling with past sin. And I came across this quote by John Piper that brought me great comfort. And so I want to read it to you. He actually says, um, he's, the context for what I was reading, he was talking about how there's good guilt and how there's also bad guilt. And he was talking through the both. And we oftentimes just talk about like guilt, like it's all bad. No, it's not all bad. Some of it's good. It's a godly sorrow. He says this, if the feeling of regret and guilt holds you in its grip week in and week out, long after the sin has passed and you've turned from it, then it's not the grief of God, but of the world. It is Satan's attack. It's freeing for me to hear that. If he cannot keep you from regretting your sin, which is a good thing, the mourning over our sin, if, he can't, if Satan can't keep you from regretting your sin, here's part two of his plan, then he'll do his best to keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. If he fails in his attempt to keep you from grieving over sin, he will do his best to turn your godly grief into an ongoing bondage of unwarranted guilt. This is like exactly what I needed to hear. And if there is any work that the devil, of the devil that the Son of God died to destroy, it is this one. Namely, robbing God's children of the enjoyment of their forgiveness. Godly grief throws us to the foot of the cross. The dying Christ slays the dragon of guilt and frees us to turn boldly away from sin, rebuke the defeated devil, and walk joyfully with God in the narrow path of righteousness that leads to life. Wrong path. Turn. New path. Mourn over the sin to throw you at the foot of the cross. Why? So then you can experience a joy that's an unspeakable joy. That's the resurrection joy. That you do live in victory because of the victory of Christ. Not because of anything you did. It's not because you repented right even. It's because you recognized your spiritual poverty. It broke your heart. It drove you to the cross. And you turned to him and now you have happiness. Let's do that.
Father, we come before you. And we need you. I pray for any that maybe resonate with the story that Jim was telling. That they are wearing a mask. That they're hiding. And they're using other stuff. Maybe like the guy that I mentioned in the messages. Religion is the stuff. To try and stop the tape from playing in their head. But they need to mourn. They need to break from it. They need to turn from it and turn to you. And I pray that right now would be a moment of repentance for them. I pray for each of us that we would experience a poverty of our spirit. And reflect on the glory of your grace. And enjoy our forgiveness. Wash over this church right now. I pray there wouldn't be a person that leaves here today that doesn't experience the forgiveness of your son Jesus.